welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. When things don't go to plan and you don't live up to your own expectations, how do you treat yourself? What is the tone of your inner dialogue? Is it gentle and kind, harsh and judgmental, or even downright brutal? We often speak to ourselves in ways we would never dream of speaking to others. When today's guest, Lisa Bayliss, was in the depth of burnout and struggling to juggle the demands of school life and family life, she discovered the transformative power of self-compassion. Lisa is a natural-born connector with an innate ability to make people feel valued and heard. She's a teacher, a counsellor, a speaker and a mother. Lisa is a published author of Self-Compassion for Educators, as well as the creator of the AWE Method, Awakening the Wellbeing of Educators, which merges self-care, mindfulness and self-compassion. Lisa has a master's degree in counselling psychology and a bachelor's degree in physical education and has taught in a range of schools and settings across British Columbia. In this episode, we discuss the common myths about self-compassion, why self-compassion is different from empathy and sympathy, the relationship between self-compassion and resilience, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lisa Bayliss. Lisa, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am so grateful and excited to be here with you, May. Thank you for the invitation. Today, we're going to be talking about the art of self-compassion. What sparked your interest in this topic? For me, I think Really, it was around my own burnout experience and my journey through understanding my mindful practice a little bit more and wanting to explore how do I sit in mindfulness when it doesn't feel very good and not wanting to linger there very long and, you know, feeling compelled to know the the science behind why, you know, meditation and mindfulness was so powerful. But most of the time I found myself not really finding myself at a sense of ease or at peace. And I was also struggling in my work life and my home life. And I started to discover this practice of self-compassion, this practice of meeting myself in a way that was kind and caring, tender and fierce. And I discovered that when I did that, I had the capacity to show up in a, a much more energetic and present way. And it made my mindfulness practice easier. And then it just I discovered it made my, you know, my parenting easier because I was able to be kinder to myself when I was frustrated with my kids. And then I, I took it to work and I was like, wow, I can be really present with the people that I, my colleagues and the students I'm working with. And so um, as I discovered it for myself, I thought also, I want to really know this and I want to be able to learn how to share this as many of us as teachers do. You know, we, we figure something out and we think, how do I bring this to my kids, my friends? The teacher brain in me was like, I need to, I need to share this. So I was sparked to 
get some really deep training to learn from some of the greats like Dr. Kristen Neff and Dr. Chris Germer. I had the privilege of learning with both of them. And it really settled into my whole being as a foundational practice that we all needed. That is so true. It's one of those skills that once we learn it, we can't unlearn it. It's true. And yet it's also a practice because we can learn it and know it but not always feel it and embody it. It's like, you know, you need to go to the gym and strengthen your body. And if you go once, that's great. But to stay strong and healthy, you need to go regular. This is the practice of of keeping your body strong. Compassion also is a practice to be able to continue to meet ourselves when challenging moments come up. We need to regularly do that both when it's easy and hard so that when the really difficult things come, we have started to create those neural pathways around kindness and care so that it isn't so hard every time. So when it comes to self-compassion, what actually is it? Well, let's start with just the definition of compassion, because sometimes I think, again, it's kind of, we know it, but we don't always understand it. So compassion by definition is to understand or know suffering or struggling, watching someone else suffer or struggle and have a deep desire to alleviate it or to support in a a really loving and kind way. So it's a recognition of of hurt and then it's a desire to support it. So self-compassion or inner compassion is the recognition that this one is struggling or suffering and that there's a, a loving way to meet it, that we actually want to meet and attend and care for ourselves because it's hard, not to fix or change, but just because we can sit with the fact that we're human beings, we're really struggling. That's sort of the general definition of self-compassion. I also like to think of it as, can you talk to yourself or can you be with yourself the way you would meet your best friend? Would you talk to yourself the way you talk to your students, your own children? For me, a big practice shifted when I heard my own daughter really being unkind to herself and lying beside her at night and saying to her all kinds of loving, kind messages and her settling that into her body and being like, you're right, mom, I'm okay. And then going back into my own office and doing some work, listening to my own critical voice and being like, wow, I'm so harsh. Like, this is so unkind. I would never, ever say these messages out loud to, to my kids, to my students, to my friends. Why, why am I saying them to myself? So it's the awareness of meeting ourselves in a kind way. I like to think of self-compassion sort of from Kristen Neff's definition of there's three components. The first is mindfulness. So, you know, we kind of actually have to know we're struggling struggling or suffering. This is the awareness when it's hard. And I don't know about you, but how many times have you come home a long day and you're like, shoulders are at your ears and your super body's tight and you're making dinner and you're smashing pots and pans and someone's like, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. And really, if we just pause and said, right, actually it was a really hard day or like I was struggling because my students were struggling. We just don't, we don't pay attention. So to be able to practice self-compassion, we need this first component of, of noticing. We have to be aware. And then we bring in the component of loving kindness is the second component of self-compassion, which truly is that idea I was talking about before. Can we talk to ourselves the way we would talk to our best friend, our children, our daughters, our, our, our students? Can we actually use a kind and tender and gentle voice towards ourselves, which we can access to so many other people, especially as educators, right? How can we turn that back to ourselves? And then the third component is what Kristen Neff defines as common humanity or connectedness. And this is the beautiful reminder that, you know, we're all just messy human being. It's this beautiful permission, I think, of like, we're all perfectly imperfect. And yet we, we're either striving so hard to hold it all together that we don't realize that, you know, we get to be messy or we feel very isolated and alone in our struggling and suffering. And we forget that everybody has it 
you know, not maybe the same experience, but the same emotions. Like we know what some of these emotions are like. And so we get to give ourselves permission to feel them and to not be so alone in our emotions. So we bring them together, loving, connected presence. It's an awareness, it's a kindness to ourselves, and it's an invitation that we're not alone. So how does that differ to empathy and potentially sympathy? Such a good question. I love the definition or the comparison between especially empathy and compassion. Sympathy is almost like a pity. It's sort of looking at somebody else and feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm glad I'm not in their shoes. Like, I, I don't want to go through what they're feeling, right? It's, it's I, I'm, you know, I'm sorry you're going through this. I kind of want to avoid it. Empathy is the experience of feeling with another human being. And so it's like, I feel with you. I may not be going through the exact same experience as you, but oh my goodness, your emotions are really real. And the I love to talk about empathy and compassion because it so relates to education. And there was some beautiful research done by a lady in the U.S. named Tanya Singer. And she did some studies around trying to figure out where empathy and compassion, where we where we feel them in our brain or where they, where they show up in our brain. And through brain scans, she noticed was that empathy, this being with another human being, this very important connectedness practice, this feeling with you, actually shows up in our limbic brain. This is where we experience our stress response, our fight, fight, freeze, right? This is where we, and we have, when we experience empathy with another human being, this feeling with, we actually see rises in cortisol and adrenaline, causing our body to go into a stress response. So Meg, you come to see me and we're talking and you're really going through something and I'm, you know, empathically resonating with you. I'm going to also have a stress response. I'm going to feel with you. This is what happens for many educators who are holding all of our students with so much trauma, who are coming in and our colleagues who are struggling and we say in empathy, we stay in this stress response. But what was curious about this same study was that she also brought in people and taught them how to practice of compassion and how to respond with compassion. And what she saw is that people who practice compassion had their prefrontal cortex light up, which is a different part of our brain. It's the part of our brain responsible really for keeping us in our human state, right? It's language centers, our emotional regulation. It's the part of our, our body that can, or the part of our brain that allows us to rational, rationally think and creatively problem solve. And it keeps us really sort of centered and, and grounded. And so, you know, it's a really important practice that when we recognize when somebody else is struggling and we want to be, you know, experience empathy with them. When we add the practice of compassion to that, we can actually slow our own stress response and be more present with another human being. It's really empathy plus love. This is what compassion is. It's this connection with another human and then adding that, you know, beautiful practice of love and care and attentiveness and keeping ourselves and other people really present and with each other. That is such a beautiful visualization for us to think about that compassion is empathy plus love and then also tapping into that beautiful, wise, intelligent voice of what's next? What can we do? How can I care for myself in that loving way? And having a moment to reflect on what is the tone of the voice in which I speak to myself? Is it kind? Am I brutal? Would I want to be friends with myself considering the way that I talk to myself? Like these are really powerful and interesting questions. And when it comes to self-compassion, there can be so much resistance. It feels deeply uncomfortable. So what is self-compassion not? 
Yeah, I think some of that resistance comes from fear and, uh, you know, not understanding. So I love this question. And there are some, you know, misgivings around self-compassion. A lot of people think self-compassion is selfish, right? If, I, if I'm just looking after myself, then I don't have the capacity for anyone else. And, and yet, you know, there's so much beautiful research doing going on that's showing the more actually we're caring towards ourselves in a really like loving way, behavioral way of, of self-compassion as the act of self-care like this deep practice of loving ourselves is that, you know, we have the capacity then to show up for more people. To me, when I think of self-compassion being selfish or people thinking that it's the oxygen mask metaphor, right? It's like, actually, you know, you need to care for yourself so you can be with others. So we need to take out that invitation that it's selfish and actually just recognize that it's actually a beautiful practice of deeply caring for ourselves. Sometimes people think it sounds weak, right? Like, it's just like, really, it's, you know, self-compassion sounds like, you know, we don't, we don't really associate kindness with strength, unfortunately. And I think that this is a hugely critical error, actually, because we know that self-compassion builds resilience. And probably one of the most impactful things we can do is grow our resiliency. Resilience is so connected to strength. And so when we practice self-compassion, we recognize that we're going to fall down. We're going to have failures. We're going to get things wrong. And we have the capacity to keep going because of our practice. Well, that's so strong. It takes so much capacity. Sometimes people think self-compassion is unmotivating, right? Like we have to be really tough on ourselves to be motivated, to push, right? There has to be this, this intensity. And yet I often tell people, think about your most favorite teacher when you were in grade school, when you were young, you know, who was the person that helped you learn? And did they have a harsh and critical voice? Did they, were they unkind to you? Or were they usually people who had really love and care for you and still kept you motivated? And what we know by the research is we actually will perform under pressure with criticism. We don't always perform well or stay okay, but we perform really well when we're cared for and when we're loved. I was a pretty high level athlete at one point and I can remember the times where I had coaches who were harsh and mean and I could still show up and do what I needed to do, but I didn't leave feeling like I was confident and, and secure in my in my play. And yet I had coaches who would still push me, motivated me and beyond where I thought was capacity, like I had capacity for. And, you know, they did so in a in a kind and, and almost like like fierce way. Self-compassion can be very, very fierce. It can still push us to do the things we don't want to do. The other thing sometimes I hear is some people think self-compassion feels really indulgent, right? It's like, oh, I'm just being kind to myself. I'm just going to go sit on the couch and watch four episodes of Netflix and eat lots of ice cream. And, and that's just because I love myself, right? And I think we need to like shift this language. Again, I think of myself as a parent. You know, if my kids come home after school, they say, mom, can we have ice cream for dinner? I'm not like, of course, I love you. You can have whatever you want. No, it's like, well, if you finish all your dinner and you eat your vegetables and you help with cleaning up after dinner, then perhaps we might have a small bowl of ice cream, right? This is how we treat our loved ones with care and compassion. We don't just give ourselves whatever we want. We ask the most powerful self-compassion question, which is, what do I need? And that can be a real impact on how we show up and do all these things from a place of tenderness and fierceness. We can experience both, but we don't have to get caught up in the fact that it's weak or it's indulgent or it's unmotivating. In fact, all research studies show the opposite. So it's really exciting to me to think that we have these fears, but actually the more we're caring towards ourselves, the more we are um, being able to meet ourselves when it's difficult in both a gentle and a fierce way, the more likely we are to feel more success and be able to do the things in our lives that we want to do.
I still remember when I first came across this research because it just blew my mind because I had grown up with that carrot or the stick, that very traditional schooling where work hard, play hard, just perform, perfect, please, all of those things. And to get to this point of, oh, it's not the carrot, it's not the stick, it's being a whole human along the way. How can I nurture myself to keep going? How can I do the thing so I want to do it again? Not just to do the thing so it's done, I finished that exam, I've got through that, I've made it, I survived it. How can I do the thing. So I want to do it again and again and again. It makes me think of so many, so many teachers who count down days to, you know, the next break to the next holiday. It's like we're living in our future to just get through as opposed to being truly present with what is. And this is a real switch, you know, self-compassion invites us into the moment. There's a, there's a real presence that we have to experience when we're practicing this because we have to keep coming back to what do I notice? Like, what do I feel? What's happening for me right now? And then how do I meet it? Like, how can I meet this moment? Not what, you know, what's going to happen in the future or not what I did last night or yesterday, but you know, how does this one right now need to be treated in a way that's going to help me in this moment? And it really slows us down and brings us into a little bit more of a present space. So we're not counting the days to our next holiday. And I have to say, we're in a profession that does this all the time. You know, we work to a bell. We, you know, are planning for our next class. We're marking, we are list makers and doers. And we, and as general for educators, we tend to be a little perfectionist thing. We tend to be a little more anxious and analytical and, and, and a little bit more high strung because we have to work in a system that is constantly us to be forward thinkers. And self-compassion is this like really amazing gift that we don't really know how to access yet that says, and you can be just here and you get to be who you are. Like it's this permission to be truly just human in this moment and experience whatever you're experiencing. It's so powerful to have this conversation because as I present the idea of self-compassion to educators and now in corporate spaces as well, it's so interesting when I first bring it up, the look on people's faces, that look of, oh no, if I give myself that, that's a slippery slope. Like if I give myself an inch, I'm going to take a mile. And so what's the difference between self-compassion and just letting myself go? I often like to use the metaphor of being in a, in a pool and so many of us feel like we're in the deep end and we're drowning. Like it's just where we are. And we feel like if we actually offer a little bit of kindness to ourselves, we open up a little bit, we're just going to end up at the bottom of the pool. Like there's just no space whatsoever. And yet, you know, when I, when I teach this, I often get that, that little, like, this is too hard or it's a little bit more vulnerable and opening spaces to vulnerability a little bit more, which I think is really special. But when I invite this work, I often say like, we're not going to solve the pool. We're not going to solve the system right away. We're not going to, you know, we're not here to offer therapy. This is not not going to fix everything. What I'm just want you to do for a second is just get out of the pool. Like just stop everything that's going on. When we first start practicing self-compassion, the invitation is to wade very, very slowly. So like just get your toes wet, go in. And, and that might mean like the very first time you notice something that's a little bit hard, you just go, oh, I notice it. It's hard. Not the like nine out of 10 biggest hurt and, you know, trauma in our life right now, but oh, I stubbed my toe. Oh, that, that hurt. Hmm. 
right? And we meet that and we hold it a little bit. We hold whatever difficult emotion or difficult feeling comes up and we kind of soften and we, we soothe ourselves and we, you know, be gentle with ourselves. And then we go, okay, I got through that. Like I was nice to myself in these little moments. And then the next time that happens, we wait a little bit deeper and we realize we get a little more capacity. And it's really, that's why I invite people to do it as a practice and to go slowly. Because the minute there's any resistance, the minute there's any um, striving or trying to do something, we're actually not being self-compassionate. Self-compassion, whenever we practice it, should truly feel like like a big, deep breath and your whole body just going, oh, thank you, right? Like it's this whole beautiful softening experience that occurs. So if we keep practicing slowly wading in and letting you know, the pool sort of like warm up around us. By the time we continue these practices and we find ourselves in the deep end, we actually have got like a life vest on. We're floating a little bit because we've learned these practices. And although we can't stop the pool, you know, we're, we can't get ourselves out of all of the suffering that's around us. There's no magic wand. I keep trying to find one. It hasn't happened yet. But I have learned that if we keep practicing, at least we feel like we can keep our head out of the water. And that's a pretty powerful invitation for educators who feel so overwhelmed all the time. And that is such a potent visual. That life jacket potentially is a hug to ourselves that I see you, I feel you, and I've got you. Whatever happens, whatever life throws at me, I'm here. We're together. I've got you. You know, what a gift that you can learn to say that to yourself. There's a few practices that I love to remind people, like just having words like you just said that hold us, that when we hear them, we go, right, thanks. You know, for me, sometimes it's just the gentle words in my ear, like slow down, sweetheart. Just remember you're okay, right? Sometimes we need to have phrases that can just remember that we're going to be able to do things. Like Sometimes it's just like you can do hard things, right? Sometimes they're motivating. Sometimes they're just like, you're enough just as you are right now. So we find whether it's our own voice or it's the voice of a compassionate and loving being in our life that we can imagine them saying it to ourselves. We can access those as practices, as just gentle reminders to ourselves. And when we hear them, our, like I said, our whole body just kind of goes, yeah, right. I know this. It's a felt experience. It's not an up here in our head. It's actually a drop down. It's neck down. Like there's a deep felt softening that happens. The other practice that's really lovely for people to start to to play with is is the practice of soothing or supportive touch, which is just gently offering a hand to your heart whenever you feel yourself, you know, any difficult emotion or the beginning of agitation or overwhelm or, or distrust or frustration. And what it does is it just invokes that little bit of warmth. You can actually feel the warmth of your hand on your heart and your whole body goes, oh, right, there is warmth. There's warmth in my chest. There's warmth in my heart. And that can, you know, visually we can or physically we can feel that and we can imagine it just spreading through our body. And all of these are just generally gateways to the intention towards meeting ourselves just with whatever we need in the moments when they're challenging. And I love how you've highlighted a little bit earlier that it's not always soothing and gentle, that at times the compassionate voice can be fierce. And I think that this is the other, maybe one of those other misconceptions that that we can only be gentle and tender towards ourselves. And Kristen Neff has a really beautiful visual. She calls it the yin and the yang of compassion, that there's the yin side, which is our, our tender side. It is that gentle side. It is that self-soothing. It's the validating. And sometimes we need that to, especially when we're overwhelmed or we're stressed or we're feeling all kinds of difficult things. And it's a real, like a sort of a back and down invitation towards ourselves. It's a softening. It's like what would a perfect mother say, a perfect parent, right? Like maybe not your mother or my mother, but what would that perfect parent say in those moments to ourselves? 
And this is the tender side, but we also get to show up with that young compassion, the fierce side. And this is the part of our ourselves that shows up in a motivated self. It's protecting of ourselves and others. It's it's the, the fierce way of setting boundaries. And this too, it can be really compassionate if the intention is to support yourself. Really, anytime we think about compassion, it's really that idea of is how is our intention supporting our well-being, our, our ourselves. So if you know that that young side is really like a, a mama bear maybe it's a mama kangaroo I don't know are they fierce too <laughs> so it's like that mama kangaroo who's like you know like don't don't mess with my joey we can have that for ourselves too and that is like I can actually like feel my strength when I say that I can feel myself coming into my body and so we can meet ourselves with tenderness and care when we need to soften and settle and soothe ourselves. And we can give ourselves the action of saying, yep, come on, sweetheart, get off that couch and go for that run. You know, you need to do that right now. But you alluded to this earlier, how we say that in our compassionate voice tone has an incredible impact on the way we can show up to ourselves. I can tell myself some really negative things and be really harsh with myself. And it feels like nails on a chalkboard, right? Like you just, your whole body just cringes. I could probably say the exact same words, but in a real tender way. So I would talk to a baby and a smile comes on my face. And so the tone of how we approach so many of these practices is, is really that intentionality to meeting ourselves when we really need to care for ourselves. And I've learned for myself over the years, Lisa, that as I've practiced more self-compassion, it's become a bit of a given that I'm not perfect. Not every day is going to be a great day. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I didn't have self-compassion because there's multiple moments, every conversations where I think, I can't believe I said that. What am I doing? And I just keep going anyway. And I feel that as that foundation has been building and I've been cultivating that strength, that fierce voice is getting stronger and there's more conviction there. Have you noticed that? For me as well. I think sometimes though, I, I needed to, for me because I was an overachiever and a goer, I actually needed to start with the tender self. I needed to sort of give myself permission to be a little bit softer on myself. I needed to recognize that I had the ability to soothe myself when things were hard because I spent a lot of time just vibrating, right? Like I just didn't know how to, to do that. So when I started practicing, that tender side was really important for me to just recognize I got to meet myself with a bit of care. But then you're right. What developed for me was this, this power. It was like, you know, like I, almost my hands on my hips and there's that super woman pose or Superman pose of like, yes, this is in me too. And I can be vulnerable and make mistakes and I'm still an amazing human being and I have strengths that I get to give to this world and I'm not perfect. I'm going to make so many mistakes. I'm going to fall down and fail. But I've learned that when that happens, I know how to hold myself. I know I have the capacity to keep going. I know the sun will rise tomorrow. I know I can start again. And I can guarantee for everyone that you will go through all kinds of suffering and struggles in your life. In fact, it's the one thing we can usually guarantee, unfortunately. So when we start to realize that that part is inevitable and not to turn away from it, not to ignore it, not to resist it, but actually very gently start to turn toward it and meet it with like, okay, I can hold this we actually start to create a larger container of compassion so that we can hold harder and harder things. And then we can be more motivated to keep going and showing up in the world. And that's sort of the paradox of all of this conversation that originally you think, oh, I can't be self-compassionate. I don't want to just let myself go. Oh gosh, I've got things to do. I can't let go of the reins. But then as we are gentle, as we put on that life vest, 
as we support ourselves, our capacity does widen. And so we can show compassion to ourselves, but then we can show compassion to other people and potentially people that we have worked with for years, but we've never taken the time to think about, I wonder what their story is. I wonder what's going on for them and showing that compassion because as we're rewriting our own stories, we then rewrite the stories we tell ourselves about others. And I think the thing too, is we know that, you know, the more we offer compassion inward, the more it grows outward. And many educators will say, I'm a real compassionate human being. Like I am really good at giving it to everybody else. And what they find is that, you know, too much of this constant giving and caring for everyone else, it's that empathy fatigue. We're always holding and caring for everyone else. And then we don't know how to do it for ourselves. We don't know how to meet ourselves when we, when we fall, like, and we get to burnout, when we get exhausted, we learn that, you know, the more we offer ourselves this care and compassion, the more we start to feel full again. We don't feel like we're on empty all the time. And then, like you said, we have a different lens. It gives us the opportunity to really share more compassion. In fact, the more I practice this, the more I have capacity to sit with difficult people in my lives, to show up and have really hard conversations that, you know, I don't always want to, to look at things from a different lens, to be more patient with my own children, with my partner, with the people that tend to push our buttons that that are so close and dear to us that we love also as much. The neat thing about compassion as we grow the container in it, we start to realize we can hold those paradox of emotions. We can be, you know, grateful and totally grieving at the same time. We can be excited and totally anxious. We can hold the these big emotions in this container because we know how to meet ourselves with these like pendulum swings of big emotions. So imagine what our classrooms would be like if we gave ourselves more permission to be human, took off the pressure of feeling like we have to be perfect, that we have to get it right, that we have to perform, that we have to pretend, that we have to produce, and that we could just be as we are. Can you imagine how grateful our students would feel too? And how connected everybody would be because we can see ourselves in that. When I see perfection, that doesn't ring true to me because it doesn't feel like that's possible for me. And that's why these conversations are so important to peel back the layers, to peel back the stories we tell ourselves and to know that no one has it all together. I have not met a human, an educator, a principal, a deputy that has said, Meg, I'm sorted no problems here, we're good. And if they do say that, I worry. (laughs) When they say, all fine, all fine here, we're on top of it. I'm like, oh dear, this conversation is going to be a long one because I've got to work through all of the pretending before we get to the real stuff. Because being human is a messy experience. And as we can learn to embrace the mess and potentially create art with the mess, opportunities for connection and growth just surround us constantly surround us. And it's so important. And I love that. You know, I agree. People who are like, I don't need this. I've got it all figured out. You're like, well, really? Like what layers are we going to peel back here? And what are you, what are you really not telling yourself? And I think that, you know, this is just so much permission to be vulnerable. But I also want to say that there's a safety in this because when we think of vulnerability, sometimes we think of oversharing and being too much. And I think sometimes people think when we start practicing this as educators, we're going to fall apart in front of our students. We're going to share, overshare, or we're not going to be able to show up on those really tough days. And, 
you know, what I love to say is actually what happens is, you know, you show up on those really hard days and you go, listen, you know, I'm not okay, actually. I can't go in my classroom because it's too much. And if I go in there, I'll be unsafe for me. And then, and you know that you start to learn this. And so you take a day off. Or you go in and you think, actually, right now I have the capacity to be here. I'm not going to tell the kids about my life, but I'm going to show them that, hey, guys, I, you know, I'm just having some messiness going on today. I am imperfect like all of you. What are we going to do today to take care of all of ourselves? Can we take it like a big collective breath as a class right now and slow everything down? Again, it's not about like indulgent and saying nobody has to write the test today because I just love you all, right? It's saying, okay. I recognize that we had that assembly last night. We were up really late. I know I'm feeling a lot of stress about what's going on in this week. Let's pause. Maybe we can take a five minute, you know, connection together before we go into this assignment or this quiz, because maybe we need to slow down. We model it so much more for our kids when we start to embody it for ourselves. It's so beautiful. And our classrooms change. And I have seen that. I've been working with educators for the last few years, really deepening their mindfulness and self-compassion practice for themselves. And they haven't even explicitly taught a single thing in their classroom. And they say to me, my classroom is different. My whole life, everything I do is different because I am able to recognize my needs and I know how to meet them in a real way that supports myself so that I can support these kids. And it's so powerful. So to wrap up this beautiful conversation, Lisa, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Let's try it. I am inspired by... Wholehearted humans being real authentic in the work that they do. When life feels hard... I slow down and settle in. An underrated skill is... The art of difficult conversations. And I'm looking forward to... More people in the world continuing to learn self-compassion. Lisa, thank you so much for the work you're doing with educators to bring self-compassion to classrooms and to homes. It is transformative. And thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. It was my honor and pleasure to speak with you. And thank you for the work that you continue to do to create this foundation so that we can continue to grow it worldwide. I hope this conversation has inspired you to take deliberate action in your life so you can feel, function and relate better. To learn more about today's guests and the incredible work they are doing in the world, see the show notes for more information and ways to connect. If you love the show, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonated with you to keep the conversation going. To learn more about ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event, learn more about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.